0: I sent an email out to everyone this last week letting you know that we had someone with COVID-like symptoms on the church staff. Good news, the test came back negative, and so that's not the case. So we're really glad for that. It is a reminder, though, it's important for us to be sensible, for us to be cautious, for us to take a conservative approach. That's what we're doing at the church. That's why we're taking precautions whenever you come here to worship, and that's why we want everybody to continue to take precautions. And we're just grateful. We're grateful for all the Lord has done and what he's doing. I hope he's doing great things in your life. I know he is. And, And that God is real every day in every circumstance. And we need to live with that faith. Amen? Faith is important. According to the Bible... Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So since all of us want to please God, we ought to ask, what do we do to have faith? What is faith? Seems like a simple question. There ought to be a simple answer. And I suppose there is, but it's not obvious because people have all sorts of ideas about faith. You have some people, they're called word of faith preachers, who think faith is this This magical power that people use to bring about miracles. And you've got positive thinkers. When they talk about faith, they think about a vague optimism that the universe has your back. There are some people, among them Christians, who think that faith is essentially believing something that your rational mind tells you isn't true. That is not true In fact, none of those three ideas of faith are biblical. We're going to look at a passage this morning that gives us a sense of what biblical faith is all about. It gives us a picture of someone who actually lives out that faith, and in doing so, I think gives us a wonderful example of how we are to live. To live in a way to please God, but also to live during a time like the time in which we're living right now. So why don't you turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. And we're not going to read the whole passage all at once. I want to walk through this passage verse by verse. Jesus is traveling by foot through Galilee. Wherever he goes, he's teaching, preaching, healing the sick. Word spreads of what he's doing. And that word reaches a Roman soldier who hears about the astonishing miracles that are taking place. And he has a need in his own household, and he wonders, could it be that Jesus would be the answer to that need? Now, it's not obvious that a Roman soldier is going to think like that. Roman soldiers were hard men, and they didn't usually pay much heed to Jewish religious teachers. But this man was different. And if you look in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, it says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. You can be sure that all the people that were gathered around, these are Jews around Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, They're going to press in at this moment. They're going to be listening because this is an interesting encounter. Here is a centurion, a powerful man. When he comes with a request, some people might consider it a command. But even though he's powerful, he's also a Gentile. And as a rule, Jews try to keep their distance from Gentiles. And, well, Gentiles don't have much time for Jews either. So what is Jesus going to do with this request? Well, he responds with a question of his own. Look in verse 7. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? I emphasize I because that's what the Greek does. In fact, the sense of the Greek is, would you have me go and heal him? And the backdrop to that question are Jewish customs. It It was expected that Jews would avoid entering into a Gentile home. Gentile homes were not kosher. They were contaminated with idolatry. You could walk into a Gentile home and very often you'd find a shrine with little figurines of gods that were worshiped in that household. So a Gentile home was understood to be unclean and a devout Jew would not enter a Gentile home lest they themselves become unclean. So with that backdrop, Jesus says, Would you have me come and heal him? And immediately the centurion would understand. So would all the people gathered around. Jesus seems to be saying, I'm not so sure I want to go into your home. In fact, the question itself seems like a rebuff, maybe even a rebuke. It's as if Jesus was saying, should someone like me go heal the servant of somebody like you? And so in this exchange, at first it seems like Jesus is just brushing this centurion off, this Gentile, wants nothing to do with him. But what he's really doing is testing his faith. Just like he did sometimes later, there was a Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I need you to deliver my daughter. She's possessed by an evil spirit. And at first Jesus treated her like he wanted nothing to do with her. Once again, he was trying to draw faith out of her. And she passed the test, and he delivered her daughter. Well, the same thing's going on here. Should someone like me go to your house? He's challenging the, Corn- the Cornelius. Would, or Excuse me, not Cornelius. He's challenging the centurion, trying to draw out his faith. Now, it so happens that this Gentile passes the test of faith. In fact... In response to the Lord's question, he utters a confession of faith that's one of the great confessions in all history. Look what he says in verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he doesn't. So what he says is, in effect, no, Lord, I'm not asking you to come to my home. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's not what I want. But I understand how authority works, Lord, Lord. And I know that you speak with the authority of God. So all I'm asking you to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. And look how Jesus reacts. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those who following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus was amazed. I love that. If you read the gospel of Matthew, you'll see throughout the gospel, Matthew tells us how Jesus time and again amazed other people. So for example, we just got through reading the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that the people were amazed at the Lord's teaching because he taught as one with authority. And then sometime later, he tells us that the disciples were amazed when Jesus stilled the storm with simply a word of command. And still later, the crowd is amazed at Jesus driving out a demon. And then yet again, In the hills around the Sea of Galilee, all the people who were gathered together were amazed at the miracles Jesus performed. Matthew tells us that the mute spoke, the crippled were made well, the lame walked, and the blind could see. Wherever Jesus went, Matthew lets us know, people were amazed. But here, Jesus is amazed the centurion. The Greek word is thaumatso. It means to be greatly astonished. And he's astonished because the Jews had the scriptures and they had centuries of this covenant with God. They've had a relationship with God for a long, long time. And this centurion, what does he have? He has some reports about what Jesus was doing. We know from Luke's gospel that he knew something about what the Jews believed. But that was it. And yet, he had greater faith than anyone in Israel. Jesus was amazed by his faith. And he sees that faith as a harbinger of things to come. Look in verse 11. I say to you, that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those from east and west, those are the Gentiles, the people of the nations. Jesus sees the time when people all around the world will come flooding into the kingdom of heaven. We are a partial fulfillment of that expectation because we as Gentiles have come into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus also sees that there are some And they are those who belong to the kingdom. They are subjects of the kingdom. He's thinking, particularly in this context, of Jews who are rejecting Jesus, Messiah. But he says they will be cast out into darkness where there will be weeping of deep regret over that horrible choice. Now, we know from Scripture, when it comes to faith... No one has any advantage over anyone else. That is, no one's spiritual heritage gives them an advantage. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who puts their trust in Jesus will be saved. And anyone, Jew or Gentile, that is confronted with the claims of Christ and rejects them will be lost. And that's what Jesus drives home here. But the thrust of the whole passage is, This man, this Gentile has faith. That's not what anyone would have expected. And the way this is going to play out over the centuries is not the way that the listeners of Jesus would have expected. But then Jesus turns to the centurion and says, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Well, there is so much that we can learn from this centurion's faith. And the first thing is this, that when we come to God in prayer, we don't have to come with our credentials in hand. We come in faith because we believe in the goodness and the grace of God. We don't have to impress God. We don't come and say, God, I I ask you to answer this prayer because I'm a good person. I come from a Christian home. That's not the case at all. The centurion, he was a Gentile coming from the outside. He didn't think he was worthy. He says, Lord, you're not, you you were worthy. I'm not looking for you to even come into my home. I'm not worthy of you. And yet he had faith because his eyes weren't focused on himself. They were focused on the Lord. See, he's trusting in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He's not trusting in himself. That's essential. That's a lesson we all have to learn. That it's not whether we feel like we've been successful in our spiritual life so that now I can pray. It's not as if when we fail and we fall into sin, oh, well, now I can't pray. It isn't either one of those. Because at our very best, we're not good enough. And at our worst, we're not too sinful. Our faith is not in ourselves It is in Jesus Christ, in the goodness of God and the grace of God. The way you might think about it is like this. Most of us have applied for a job, and when you apply for a job, you also have to present a resume, often anyway. And in that resume, you list out your previous jobs, any degrees that you have, special skills, maybe credentials. You also wildly exaggerate your virtues, And you carefully curate a list of references, people who are willing with a straight face to puff you to mythic proportions. It's all an effort to present yourself in the best possible light so that that employer will hire you. And then you intend to do a good job. You're going to earn your keep. You're going to work really hard. Coming to God in prayer is nothing like applying for a job. You don't have to list your credentials. You don't have to impress God. You don't have to be anything in particular because God is not a businessman hiring employees and paying wages. He is a father lavishing gifts on unworthy people. So we come as a centurion saying, God, I'm not claiming that I deserve anything, but I don't have to deserve anything. My faith is in you. We trust in God. That's one of the most important lessons of faith: that it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Him. There's another lesson that's also very, very important: faith is not a mystical feeling that God is going to answer your prayers, faith is a rational conviction that what God has said is true. Think about what the centurion did. He he had this word about Jesus Christ. He knew what he was saying. He knew what he was doing. So he worked out the logic of that information. He thought to himself, you know, I am under Caesar's authority. And that means that I carry Caesar's authority. That when I speak, the men under me are going to do what I say. I speak the word and it's done. Well, Jesus... He's under God's authority. He has been sent by the Father. Now, he may not understand all about the fatherhood of God and all the rest, but he understood. Here is this man sent by God doing what no mere human being could do. He sees that. So here is this Jesus sent by God speaking with the authority of God. What's the conclusion? That when he speaks the word, it will be done as well. He's working the analogy from his own experience and pushing the logic through so that this truth is applied to his specific situation. He is, in other words, using his mind and reasoning out the truth. Faith is based on truth. Faith is a conviction about the truth. It's a conviction arrived at by the mind that affirms that truth. It is not a feeling. So I was in Mobile, Alabama, sitting at the kitchen table uh, of Jimmy Arundel. Jimmy and his family had faced over the last year some really hard blows, among those Jimmy's mother had passed away and his sister-in-law, and now his father was in the adjacent room, barely holding on to life. It had been a tough, tough year. We're sitting at the table, drinking coffee, and he said, you know, my, my dad got up every morning for years. I mean, I don't remember when he didn't get up every morning and sit at this very table and study his Bible. And he reached and he picked up a Bible off the table and he turned it to Romans 8.28 and he read St. Paul's famous words, In all things, God works for the good of those who love Christ Jesus. In all things, God works for the good. Jimmy said, all things. That's, That's pretty much everything, isn't it? I said, well, yeah, that's pretty much everything. And then he started preaching. Not so much at me, but I mean, he's preaching to the air. Because really, he's preaching to himself. He said, everything is everything. What doesn't fit within everything? What in my life makes me an exception to the promise that says, in all things, God works for the good? What makes our family any different than any other family? What possible thing could happen that would exclude us from what this verse talks about? I mean, he was really preaching. And it was good. And it was all about him reasoning off that Scripture, arguing from the Scripture to his own specific situation. And he said, I believe that all things are working for good, and I believe God's working right here, right now. He said it with tears in his eyes. He was hurting, but he had faith. And it was a faith he was arguing himself into. See, when you're going through trouble, don't try to feel your way into faith. Faith is not an emotion. If you have faith, there'll be times when Your emotional life is euphoric, no doubt, but not always. Faith is not an emotion. It is a conviction, and that conviction is founded on truth, and the truth is appropriated by your mind as you reason it out. Faith is sanctified logic. That's what Jimmy Arundel was holding on to. It was sanctified logic. This verse says all things, and that includes what I'm facing. So consider the scripture. It's full of promises. Before this morning, I I pulled out three, almost at random. I mean, we could pull out hundreds of promises. But here are three. I want you to look at them. If you go ahead and put up this one. Jesus said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And then the psalmist in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then Paul says, my God will supply all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Three promises. They all point to the same truth, that is that God provides for us, and we can trust him in that. Now, with those promises, we have to ask, all right, are they true? And if they are true, do they apply to us? And if they're true and they apply to us, what is the rational thing to do in light of them? And the answer, of course, is to take those promises and let them shape our thinking, our attitude, our words, and our actions. The rational thing to do is to say, this is the way it is, and this will guide my life. Because feelings are not facts. And faith is not based on feelings, but it is based on fact. Here are the facts. I have them right here in the promises of God. And I'm going to cling to that and I'm going to hold to that. That's what faith does. And that's what the centurion was doing. That's why he had this great faith that amazed Jesus. Because he took the truth he had and he reasoned it out and applied it and accepted it. It's not a matter of feeling. So in light of this, what should we do? Well, one thing, we need to become students of the Scripture. We need to be deep in the Scriptures. Because we have to learn to correlate the promises of God and our needs and bring them together. Too many people don't have faith because they don't know the Bible. But then beyond that, please hear me now, we need to live out of our heads, not out of our hearts. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? That sounds wrong. It sounds wrong because you read your Bible and you know you're supposed to believe from your heart. But here's the thing. When the ancients spoke of the heart, they included the mind. In the ancient way of viewing things, the person's heart, including their, included their mind, their thinking. In our day, when people say heart, they usually associate it exclusively with emotion. To say you believe something from the heart means you feel it. So, just for this sermon, to make the point I want to make, allow me to blow up the typical language we use and say We need to live out of our head and not out of our heart. By that, I don't mean that we should have a superficial head faith. Sometimes we talk like that. I don't mean that. What I mean is we need to base our faith on truth and rationally apply that truth to our life and live on it. Live according to facts, not feelings. We must Avoid slipping into that mindset that, you know, it's all about how we feel. I'll tell you how that happens to us, by the way. When you put your faith in God and His promises, 90% of the time, your mood's going to start lifting. You're going to start feeling better, and that's a good thing. But see, here's the problem. We then, in that experience of feeling better, we we start thinking that faith and the feeling, they're the same, but they're not. And once we've made that connection, now when we don't have the feeling, we're just out of sorts. We don't know what to believe. No, faith is a conviction based on truth. It is not a feeling. Sometimes, even often, the feelings accompany faith but not always. And we need to stand strong in what we believe. I'd say the same thing to someone who is lost in looking for God. If you are going to find God, you're going to find God in His promises. God has made great promises. He sent His Son to die on a cross for us, rising again from the dead for us. He was crucified that we might die to the old life, raised that we might live to the new. And the promise is if you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be born again. That is, you'll be changed from the inside out. That's the promise. Now, is that true or not? My prayer is that you've come to the point where you see that it is true. And if that's true, you need to claim that promise. You need to stand on that. You don't need to feel like you've been saved. You need to put your faith in the promise. Believe me, feelings will come, but not all the time, not in every circumstance. And the essence of faith, the faith that leads to salvation, is counting on the promise of God. So you can do that today. You can do that in this room. In fact, when we dismiss, I'm going to be here, I'd love to be able to speak to you and be able to talk about putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're watching online, we have a minister on that platform who's there for you, and you can go off into a virtual room together, and you can communicate. And he, he'll share with you how you can receive Christ and have your life changed. But we all need to respond in one way or another. So let's pray. Let's take some time right now to do business with the Lord. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ as our Lord, our Savior. And our faith is in Him and in our God who who filled Him. He is our God, our Lord and our God. And so we ask you, oh God, to bring us into a place of strong faith and to speak to us whatever word we need to hear in these closing moments. Amen.